Thank you for joining us for our Renewal City Church podcast. If you're looking for ways to get involved, join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Roxy Theater in Longview. Or find us online at rcclongview.org. We hope you're blessed and that this message finds you well. Palm Sunday, first first Sunday of spring break. We've got a few people who are out of town enjoying their spring break, so which explains the multiple hats I'm wearing. Uh, but the nice thing about Palm Sunday is it's one of those Sundays when we talk about something that we've talked about before on Palm Sunday. Uh, you know, we have a few Sundays a year around Christmas time, around Easter, where, you know, these messages, I mean, they don't write themselves, but if there ever was a Sunday that they did, it would be those Sundays when we just cover the same territory that we've covered before. Um, and so the cool thing about that is I don't have to try to think about, well, what am I going to preach on on Palm Sunday? We all know, right? Jesus riding the donkey, palm branches, Hosanna, Hosanna, uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, that's the good part. Um, the, the part that is maybe not so great is I think for a lot of us when we're engaging with familiar territory when we're engaging with familiar content, uh, maybe our brains tend to check out just a little bit because we're like, I've heard it before. I already know all of this. And and it takes energy to stay focused on things. And so uh, maybe because it's familiar, we'll let our guard down a little bit. Now, interestingly, uh, this, is not, uh, this is not how the Hebrews thought about things that they were familiar with. So the, the Hebrew sages of old, the scholars and the scribes and the people who the Lord used to prever, preserve the scriptures for us, uh, they really believed that there was incredible, incredible value in repeating things over and over again. The more times you told the story, the better it was. The more times you meditated on a passage of scripture, the richer and the deeper that it would get. Uh, they believed that coming, that they believed that you could really only or maybe this is a better way to say it. There are certain levels of understanding of the scriptures that you could only get to by reading it and repeating it over and over again. And they believe that in a moment of, you know, divine inspiration, something that you had read a hundred times before, something you'd recited a hundred times before would suddenly be highlighted and look a little bit different. Now, I, I would imagine that probably at least some of you have experienced that truth in, in how you would approach scripture today. You know, if you show me someone who is intentionally immersing themselves in scripture year after year, day after day, I'll show you someone who's finding value in it. Someone who, when they approach the word more often than not, will come away with something valuable. These are the kinds of people who tend to be really, really disciplined in their routine and then also in their process. These are the kinds of people who you see carrying around notebooks and pens everywhere they go. Bonnie Joslin type people who, who are immersed in Scripture. I could, I could name a few more, but I won't. Uh, um, people who are disciplined in that and have read it over and over again begin to see multiple layers and begin to see more deeply into it. People who just read the Bible a little bit, who maybe start in January and say, this is the year, I'm going to do it. And they make it to about January 5th, and then they set it aside for 11 months and then come back to it. People that tend to read that way, they tend to, yeah, they read it, and it's hard to find 
things of value because the value is found in really digging into the text and, and really spending time and repeating it. Um, I, I challenged us this year at the beginning of the year to become people who are more uh, committed to reading the word, to being in the scriptures. Uh, we've, you know, I launched a, a noon hour men's Bible study over at the Three Rivers Mall uh, believing that only the most dutiful scholars would take time to be at the Three Rivers Mall food court in the middle of their week. And, um, and anyhow, this is something that we're going for. And, and actually, I would, I would love to invite you into an experiment this week. Uh, we had a leadership retreat for our elders and staff and, and deacons a couple of months ago. And leading up to it, I guess about a month ago, leading up to it, we spent time memorizing one of the Psalms of Ascent. And uh, today, Palm Sunday, marks the beginning of Holy Week, which is the week that leads up to Easter. And the Psalms of Ascent were songs that the people of Israel would sing when they were going up to Jerusalem for, uh, for the annual uh, festivals that they had in Judaism. And I thought, well, we had such a good time as a leadership team working on these Psalms of Ascent leading up to our leadership retreat, I thought, how great would it be if I just invited everyone at Renewal to engage with a little devotional that I've put together for the Psalms of Ascent as we go up to Easter during Holy Week. And so there's actually a link to this devotional. It's just a Google Doc, so it's nothing too fancy. Uh, but I've got a link to it in the discussion questions for today. And uh, I would encourage you to open it up and and maybe spend this week memorizing one of the Psalms of Ascents, and, and hopefully you'll get some spiritual value out of that. Um, and then as we dive into the text today, hopefully we'll get some value out of this. Let's pray. Father, we are just grateful that you have preserved these stories for us. We're thankful for the way that the calendar year just brings us back to certain stories again and again over the course of our lives. And we just ask that today the story of Palm Sunday would speak to us in a new and a fresh way. I pray every person here would see something, would hear something, and, and, and hear it in a way or see it in a way that they hadn't really seen before, and that each of us would just be changed by this time together in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, or sorry, Luke chapter 19, uh, verse 28. Uh, we're going to go with Luke's version today. Uh, Palm Sunday is one of the events in Scripture that's recorded in all four Gospels, and each of the author's take on it maybe has some different details that stand out, and, and I just felt inspired to go with Luke's version today. But we probably will, at least through the course of the story, reference a few things that happen in other versions as well. Anyways, we'll start reading in Luke 19, verse 28, reading all together. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you're going to find a colt tied there, which no one has ever written, or sorry, ever ridden. <laughs> Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say to them, the Lord has need of it. This is, the, this is the part of the story that I always think of when Jesus would tell his disciples to go out and do these things, and then they would go out and do them. And it's a different time, a different era. But I'm so thankful that I don't have a boss <laughs> telling me to go do stuff that this feels like stealing, right? And, and, uh, and what's the excuse you're supposed to give? Well, the Lord has need. I mean, try that if you go out on the road and steal a car, right? 
oh, well, no, don't worry about it. The Lord has need of it. Hopefully this works. So a couple of disciples go in there. Uh, those who were sent ahead went in. They found the colt, just like he said. They started to untie the colt. The owners understandably asked them, what are you doing? <laughs> Why are you untying this colt? And so they replied, the Lord has need of it. And then presumably it all worked out after that, because the next thing we know is they bring it to Jesus. And I, I was thinking about their experience of being sent out by Jesus to do something that maybe feels a little bit unreasonable, uh, not really being given a lot of good tools or good answers for anyone who might question them other than, well, the Lord told me to. And then it just has a way of working out. And I think for those of us who are trying to live obedient to the Lord of our lives, uh, we know that obedience is, is more, it's more of a relational thing than just based on the results that happen out of it. Uh, but I know that, that those of you who have walked with the Lord and obeyed him, taken risks for him, done things that maybe pushed you a little bit out of your comfort zone, I believe that there would be a testimony in your life that, yeah, those things do just, they tend to have a way of working out. For whatever reason, you go and you do something, it maybe seems a little silly, it maybe seems a little out of place, you go and do it because the Lord told you to, and, and somehow that just tends to work out. And so this works out for these disciples. They bring the donkey to Jesus in verse 35. They throw their cloaks on the colt, and they put Jesus on it, and then, they went, and then he went along. Uh, as he went along the road, people spread their cloaks down on it. Verse 37, when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they had seen. And they were saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord and peace in heaven and glory in the highest. In, in your Bible, there's probably a little footnote there after the word Lord. Uh, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And that footnote, of course, is going to reference Psalm 118. These people are probably in many ways singing Psalm 118. Uh, the other accounts have a famous line from this psalm, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, which is translated, Lord, save us now, or Lord, grant us success. And then the line, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so there's kind of a link that's been put into this story that is connecting this story to something that was written, you know, a thousand years before, at least maybe four or five hundred years before, uh, of, of what was going to happen. And as Jesus is entering Jerusalem on that day, what the people have in their minds is this psalm from back, uh, from back of those ages ago. And then they also have something in their hands. I think you all know what they have in their hands, right? Someone just say it. Palms. They have palm branches. It, well, they all have palms in their hands. That's true. And then they have palm branches in the palms of their hands. And, uh, and, and this is imagery from Psalm 118. It talks about uh, going up, uh, I think it says going up with palms in hands in the festive, festal procession or something like that. Uh, so the, the imagery in Psalm 118 is this parade of people waving palms and welcoming a new ruler. Uh, there's some really, really good lines in Psalm 118 that uh, that go on throughout it. I mean, it starts off, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Maybe you've heard that one before. 
uh, they, it continues, the Lord is my strength and my defense. He's become my salvation. Uh, further down, there's a really famous line in it. The stone the builders have rejected has now become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. And so this psalm has all of this rich imagery of, uh, of the day that God comes and saves his people. There's uh, phrases in it about the oppression and the past and the difficult things that have happened and all of the uh, pressure and, and the trouble that is being encountered. And then it's like God swoops in and saves the day and, and delivers everyone or sends someone who comes in and, and saves the day. Uh, now, in the line from Psalm 118, the line goes, Blessed is he who comes or the one who comes in the name of the Lord. But you notice in Luke's account, they were singing, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. So they've, they've changed the lyrics just a little bit. They've put a twist on the words. And, uh, and, and why is that? Why would they do something like that? Well, it's because in the people's mind, they don't just have Psalm 118 in mind, but they also have the prophecy of Zechariah in mind as well. This idea of someone riding down the hill on a donkey into town in a festal procession with palm branches reminds them of something that one of their prophets had said hundreds, centuries before this. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, the, the prophet says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion, and shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king is coming to you righteous and victorious, and lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt even, the foal of a donkey. This is where we begin to understand that Jesus' mode of transportation wasn't just a coincidence. Matthew points this out in his gospel, talks about Jesus riding the donkey into Jerusalem. And then like Matthew does in his thing, he says oftentimes he explicitly links it to a certain passage. So he says this, he, you know, he rode in on, on a donkey and this fulfilled what was said by the prophet Zechariah. Uh, now, Matthew was writing to the Jewish people. And so he knew that as he's telling the story of Jesus, the Jewish people are going to have their scriptures and their prophecies in mind. And so Matthew goes out of his way to make sure that they're connecting all the dots for his audience. Uh, Luke is actually writing to a Greek audi audience. And, and so he's writing to people who don't know the Hebrew scriptures. They don't know the prophets. So he doesn't go out of his way to highlight connections to texts that the Greeks are unfamiliar with. Um, just some interesting differences in how they write things. Um, but here for Jesus, his chosen mode of transportation is making a statement. You imagine from the day that Zechariah spoke these words to the nation of Israel, they have been looking and waiting for somebody, some great king, to ride that donkey down the hill into Jerusalem. And they've just been watching for it. Of course, Jesus' ministry has gained a great deal of prominence at this point. He's got all kinds of followers. He's been doing miracles. He's coming from the town where he lay, raised Lazarus from the dead, probably followed by a bunch of people who saw that very thing happen. And he's riding on a donkey, and the palm branches are there, and the people are putting this together. This is our moment. This is our king. He is the one who was promised, and here he is right now. And as they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, they're saying, save now, Lord, save now, grant us success. This is the moment when God comes 
and wipes away oppression and restores uh, the kingdom of his people. The crowd's saying this, and then in verse 39, we read, Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. The Pharisees say this because they understand the links as well, right? They understand what is being said, and they're getting pretty nervous about all of this. I think the reason that they're getting nervous is because the king coming to Jerusalem is going to greatly disrupt the status quo of what they've enjoyed. You see, the Pharisees and the Jewish religious leaders of the time had a good thing going with their Roman occupiers. Herod had just finished building them this marvelous, beautiful temple. They had the Roman army and military to help uh, protect them and, and, and establish their authority. And as long as they did their part and, and the Romans did their part and everything stayed as it was, they were in a very privileged place in society being buddy-buddy with the state that was over them. The last thing the Pharisees needed was someone coming and causing disruption to this profitable friendship that the state religion had made with the government. A Jewish king would be very disruptive in that whole relationship because Caesar doesn't like to share his kingship with anyone else. So they come to Jesus and they're saying, hey, you've got to tell them to quiet it down. We've got to settle this whole thing down. There's going to be disruption, and in their minds, they know we're going to lose the corrupt influence that we've had in society. Jesus says to them in verse 40, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Now that statement is the point in the Children's Church Palm Sunday lesson where everyone imagines creation glorifying God, right? And, and we tell the kids, look, here's the thing. Even if humanity didn't worship God, all of creation would erupt in praise and worship. And there's biblical scriptures backing that up. And, and it's a great part of the story. But remember, it's only in reading and rereading the scriptures that certain truths can become illuminated for us. And so set aside the singing sunsets and stones and trees for just a moment. And let's see if there's something more that Jesus is trying to make these leaders understand. So similar to the links that we've already talked about, links to Psalm 118, links to Zechariah, there's actually a link in uh, the gospel of, of Luke uh, to the thing that the angels proclaimed at the beginning of his story. He has the people that are praising, they say, glory to God and peace on earth, Right. And that, where do we hear that before? We heard it Christmas time. And so when biblical authors wanted to link ideas together, because footnotes hadn't been invented yet and uh, digital hyperlinks hadn't been invented yet, they would, they would throw out phrases and words that then good students of the scriptures would see those things highlighted as links. And, and what Jesus says to the Pharisees, even the stones will cry out, I'm telling you, it's a link as well. And it's a link that the Pharisees understood all too well. It's an explicit link to the prophecy of Habakkuk from chapter 2. The prophet pronounces in chapter 2, A woe to those who build their house by unjust gain, setting their nest 
on high to escape the clutches of ruin. Those who build their house by unjust gain. Does that maybe sound like a corrupt religious leadership who's made an unholy alliance with the Roman state? Maybe just a little bit, right? Maybe just a little bit. It says, you've plotted the ruin of many people. You've shamed your house and you're forfeiting your life. And the stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodworks will echo it. I think Jesus is warning the religious leaders that their profitable corruption has been seen by God. And their denial of who Jesus is is going to be their final downfall. It's like there's this battle going on for the nation of Israel to embrace the truth of who Jesus is, to embrace their Messiah. And the Pharisees are leading the charge in silencing the voices who would proclaim who Jesus really is. And, and for this moment on Palm Sunday, when Jesus is coming down the hill, riding the donkey, for this moment, it seems like the truth just might win out. For a moment, the people, maybe moved by emotions or moved by the prophetic imagery or moved by the Holy Spirit, I don't know, but they see it for a moment, right? And they're like, yes, you're our king. Save us now. Do that thing that we need you to do. But over the course of just a week, the crowds end up being swayed the other way. The crowds end up being silenced on their praise of Jesus as king, and they end up being raised up, crying, crucify him, crucify him. And these Pharisees and these religious leaders who are the ones silencing the praise and bringing the condemnation, I think Jesus is warning them in this moment that the stones in the walls and the timbers of their temple are going to testify against them. The next line in Luke's gospel says, as Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And this is where you can kind of see that link that Luke threw in to Habakkuk chapter 2. It really almost seems fitting here, right? You see how that link leads us right into the next sentence. We go from people praising and glorifying Jesus to Jesus weeping over the impending doom of Jerusalem. We've gone from crowds cheering and glorifying their Savior to the Savior weeping over what he knows is going to come. And so Jesus is moved. He's weeping and he says, Jerusalem, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it's been hidden from your eyes and the day is going to come when your enemies are going to build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. Then they'll dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. I imagine Jesus weeping over what he knows is coming to Jerusalem. And, and you imagine... This prophecy came, came true, 70 A.D. So a generation after the Jewish leaders managed to turn the crowds against their Messiah, 
And in response to a militant Jewish rebellion that was happening at the time, Caesar's army marched in Jerusalem, sacked the city, and tore the temple down and, and torched everything. And the temple hasn't been rebuilt since. And, and I'm imagining in Jesus' mind, you, know, you have the people who for generations now have seen this temple as a symbol that they are God's people and that God is with them. And although the symbol is still there in Jesus' day, we know that the people have drifted pretty far, especially the religious leaders, have drifted pretty far from being with God or God being with them. We know they've drifted far enough so that when the Lord's anointed one came to them, they reject him. They refuse to see him for who he is. They turn him over to be crucified. And because of that, because of their refusal to acknowledge Jesus in worship, now all that they have held dear, the symbol of God's presence, ends up completely destroyed and crumbling all around them. Jesus is saying to them, if you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but you didn't recognize the time of God's coming to you, you didn't recognize the Messiah when he showed up, you, you thought... You thought you recognized it. You know, he's, the, he showed up. They're waving the branches. Like, ah, oh, this is really him. But then when Jesus didn't do what they wanted him to do in the next week, their praise was easily talked into silence. I think about that experience during Holy Week in Jerusalem where the crowds who saw Jesus as King and Savior on Palm Sunday, you know, by next Friday are shouting, crucify him. I, I wonder how many of us have maybe walked through a similar type of thing where the praise that we were singing with gusto and, and all the passion of our heart began to fall silent over the years or over a course of a week because things didn't quite pan out how we thought that they would. Maybe our praise falls silent because Jesus isn't doing the things that we thought he should do. Maybe there have been religious leaders or influences in your life who have poisoned your own perception of Jesus. I think all of these different things can work together and, and it can lead to us not really acknowledging Jesus for who he is or praising for who he is, but coming away with some kind of weird, different relationship with him. I'm reminded of Jesus' words at the beginning of the Gospel of John. Uh, John wrote this, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. He came to those that were his own, but his own did not receive him. But to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's a great little link to what we see happening here on Palm Sunday, right? Jesus, who made Jerusalem, walks into Jerusalem, and Jerusalem doesn't recognize their maker. Jesus, who came to be the king of his people, ends up rejected and turned over to the Romans to be crucified by his people. 
And yet, even with those disappointing outcomes, still, to those who will believe in him, he gives the right to become children of God. I imagine the crowd on Palm Sunday, they're believing in him for a moment, right? They're well on their way to being God's children. God's people just might make it through. They just might become God's children. And then there's this turnaround, and they're going the other way. And instead of being on the way to being God's children, they're on their way to destruction and doom. Just a few decades from the Roman army falling upon them and horrible, horrible things happening. What a turnaround. It reminds me today how quickly deception can sneak in and and silence my praise or spoil my perception of who Jesus is can shake my belief. It can lead me to places I never imagined I would be. You know, Jesus is who he is, regardless of our opinions about him. But it's only the truth of who he is that can save us. So my hope is that this Holy Week, that we'll be people who really embrace the truth of who Jesus is. To do that, I think we have to get good at looking past certain things. One of the things we really have to look past is our own expectations for what he would do. The Jewish people wanted a king who would deliver them from the Romans. And Jesus is like, the Romans are not your problem. You're your problem. The Jewish people needed to be saved from the Jewish people. Every single one of them. And I think it's really easy for us to approach life and approach our relationship with Jesus and be like, Jesus, I want you to work this out and this out and this for me. And then you become really frustrated because all he seems to be working out is all the stuff that's wrong in here. You're like, Jesus, enough working on me. Can we fix some of these people around me? It's like, no, that's not your problem. This is the only problem that you need to be addressing right now. Let's work on this. I think another thing that we need to get past is, is the preconceived ideas we have about who Jesus is supposed to be. The crowds in Jerusalem had been prepared with certain expectations for Jesus and a certain paradigm for who he was based on their culture and their understanding of the scriptures, and that all turned out to be flat-out wrong. I mean, the Messiah who would suffer and sacrifice his life, we see it hidden in the Old Testament, but nobody in the first century saw it there until after it had all happened. I mean, even the smartest of the smartest hardly had an inkling that the Messiah is going to come and die? That was not what they were expecting. And I think that culture and, and uh, Christian culture and all of that has a way of sort of setting us up for wrong expectations for Jesus as well. We, we believe in a Messiah who dies, but we also maybe have ideas about him that make him look a lot more, well, a lot more like me or you than the person that he is. And so, uh, so we need the Holy Spirit to help us uh, break away from the, some of those things. And, and I really think one of the most useful tools that God can use for that, just to bring it all back to the same place, is when he invites us to wade deep into the scriptures Way deep into the text. Spend time studying, reading, rereading, repeating, getting into the Word. Who is Jesus? 
And then I think also wading deep into a prayer life where you are contemplating the face of God, where you're engaging with Him and hearing His voice and getting to praise Him for who He is and allowing Him to pour into your life uh, perspective on who you are. I think if we can engage in those two ways, I think we'll be well on our way to making sure that there are no stones or timbers crying out in testimony against us one day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the revelation you give us from your word. Uh, We thank you for the person that you are and the privilege that you have given us, inviting us to come and know you. God, I'm convinced we have only just scratched the surface and there's so much more for us to know. Give us a hunger for your word. Give us a desire to know you and to really connect with you and and meet us in this place of searching. We know that you're not a God who hides, but you're a God who longs to be found, is calling out to us. Open our ears to hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen.